Welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Dorian Linsky. On Friday's show, Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves seem allergic to excitement and Labour supporters are itching for the vision thing. But after years of politicians over-promising and under-delivering, is this drab realism what voters want? Are we in the age of under-promising? Plus, they've managed to get tickets for every major sporting event of the year. Well done. Just a boiler everywhere. But is their strategy working? I bet they've even got Taylor Swift tickets, haven't they? (laughs) It's the only way. And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, they're wicked and they're lazy. Young women on TikTok are apparently trading in ambition for something called lazy girl jobs. Is this an admission of defeat or a healthy commitment to a more balanced life? Let's meet the panel. Miranda Sawyer is a journalist, broadcaster and host of the brand new podcast Paper Cuts, reading the news so we don't have to. Hello, Miranda. Hiya. So we don't normally start with the guests, but this is a Paper Cuts kind of story. All week... The big news story really has been speculation about the identity of the BBC presenter accused of soliciting pictures from young people. And they were kind of went back and forth and the story seemed to be falling apart and the son seemed to be in trouble. Just before we started recording, Hugh Edwards' wife made a statement going that it is Hugh Edwards and that he is um, under inpatient care and he's going to be taking time off etc etc even as the police said that actually nothing illegal had happened but i suppose the illegality matters less because it's still a scandal so is the sun despite sailing close to the wind have they basically won and does that mean they're going to maybe feel that kind of the recklessness pays off uh, yeah, it's, it's really interesting, isn't it? So essentially, it's dominated the the, the headlines since Saturday when the Sun came out with the with the story. And the, for a certain amount of time, they were really sailing close to the wind because of privacy laws have got much much tighter, and that means that you can't um, indicate anything. You can't invade somebody's privacy. Um, like even if in this situation, it feels a bit weird for me to say this now because I've been saying the unnamed presenter for so long, but. You know, if Hugh Edwards had, had, if he'd been arrested for doing something illegal, which he has not been, but if he had been arrested for doing something illegal, the papers still could not name him because of privacy laws. So what they were pushing for, The Sun, really, was they kept going with this story because they believed it was an interesting story. And what they would kind of justify would say, look, this man is supposedly a happily married man and he's doing this on the side. This is not appropriate. So, I mean, you know, kind of Puritan kind of style. So they were kind of pushing the story out there in the hope that somebody would name him because it it has happened. You know, in the mm. past, there have been people who we've, who've had kind of super injunctions. Ryan Giggs is one who was named in Parliament. And then that meant that the papers could break the super injunction. That's fine. Hugh Edwards did not have a super injunction. But his wife has come forward and given the name, in which case, to be honest, all bets are off. So the guessing is over. There will be yet more headlines about it. It will be, it will dominate paper cuts on Friday. It might might still kind of go on into next week. And yes, you could say that the Sun has won because it, you know, initially it seemed like their their story was falling apart because he has done nothing illegal. But um, you know, they've named him, and uh, you know, they were right in inverted commas. He was doing something that was considered to be a bit iffy, and his wife has named him. Matt Green is a comedian and Twitter satirist. Hi, Matt. Hello. Uh, during the Philip Schofield scandal, people weren't questioning the future of ITV. The usual backbench rogues gallery, people like Lee Anderson and, and so on. User story obviously is an excuse to challenge the licence fee. Why are all BBC scandals have to be existential threats? Well, I think, I mean, it's an obvious point, but basically a lot of the press, particularly the Myrtle press, just don't like the BBC. They hate the licence fee. They see it as a threat. They see it as anti-competitive. 
and they're very keen to get people in general to kind of resent the license fee, to see it as a tax, to see it as where well, you're paying for these people and they're paying young people or whatever they're doing. Um, and it is a difficult argument at this point. I think with streaming and with everything else, with you, people can watch pretty much everything they want on the internet. It's kind of a hard thing to argue against sometimes. I think the other problem is that the BBC is a massive bureaucracy and one bit of it never seems to know what the other bits are doing. So you end up with these ridiculous situations like the BBC interviewing the BBC about the BBC. I like it when they can't get the BBC to comment. Yeah, and, yeah. and they ask the BBC for comment, but no one from the BBC was available. But they're standing in front of the BBC and there's someone else from the BBC doing another interview with someone else from the BBC. And I think it just feels silly. I enjoyed the tweet that said, it's called BBC News because it brings you news about the BBC. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, that's Marie Leconte, columnist and author of Escape, How a Generation Shaped, Destroyed and Survived the Internet. Hi, Marie. Hello. Um, the Telegraph thinks it's found even more key demographics for the next election. In order to survive, Rishi Sunak apparently needs to court the National Trusters, the Women's Institutors and the Surrey Shifters. Sounds like a really like a terrible festival lineup. <laughs> <laughs> All of them, unfortunately, seem to hate him. Are these voter groups useful or do they just give pollsters and strategists something to do? It does remind me a little bit about being on the music press and having colleagues who had invented genre names. <laughs> um, I, we were all very jealous because we wanted to be, we wanted to invent like trip hop or whatever. And so you just desperately make up genre <laughs> names that didn't stick. So I think it's a slightly complicated one, actually, because so like the, what the Telegraph piece, for example, got right is that the Tories have a massive woman problem, just in general. So it's not just these three types of women, just women in general. Are there other types um, of women? I think these are the three types of women. <laughs> I'm going to make a great BuzzFeed quiz, actually. You know, which one are <laughs> How you? many types of women um, are there? Um, but no, no, and, and like, interestingly, so women used to be more likely to vote conservative than men for a very, very long time. And that only, I think, switched in 2015. And 2019 was, I think, the first election where men were a lot more likely to vote Tory than women. So that there's kind of a grain of truth there. But I think identifying those women is not specifically useful. And kind of more broadly as well, I think having these kind of, again, types of voters can matter if the election looks like it's going to be quite a close one. Like if you think it is all going to be down to a few constituencies or a few groups of voters again, then actually it's not the worst idea in the world to try and really zero in and say, okay, you know, who's not really working at the moment, who's working too well, etc. At the moment, to be blunt, you know, it is not even if they were to regain uh, the was it like Surrey Swingers, whatever, like they would still lose the election. So it doesn't quite, and it feels as well like an import from the US. And and again, I'm just going to be stating the obvious here. The US is very big and Britain is very small. So like, I think in the US, you can probably talk about a group that sounds niche, but is actually millions of people. Yeah. In Britain, A, that's not really the case. And B, people kind of vote the same. So I think a lot of stuff about the Red Wall, for example, was entirely redundant because people in the Red Wall vote like people in the rest of the country because it's quite a small country with not that many people. So, yeah, yes and no. I find the problem is, even in this podcast terms, is discussing anything to do with the Tory party. It's sort of hypothetical. So it's like, what does Rishi Sunak need to do to win the next election? And I just think <laughs> that well, first step by a time machine. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, he's not going to. And they go, oh, what about this Tory policy initiative? And it's like, it's not going to happen. <laughs> so like all, all of the discussion around the Tories just seems to be tanked by the fact. Well, I say fact, the very strong likelihood they're not going to fare well like, at the next election. It's like, how does Leeds United win the premiership this year? It's like, <laughs> yeah. It, it can't happen. Yeah, and it's like, well, if you don't replace this defender, they risk losing. Yeah. <laughs> First this week, in his New Year's message to the nation, Keir Starmer said, we must look forward with hope. For hope to flourish, Britain needs change. 
change and hope. But hope seems in short supply when Starmer talks of the future now. Other shadow ministers, including Rachel Rees and West Streeting, have been similarly cautious when it comes to making promises about the next Labour government. John Harris of The Guardian has an interesting theory that voters are tired of visions of a glorious future because the ones offered by Boris Johnson, Liz Truss, Jeremy Corbyn and Brexit have all come to nothing. So there might be value in being boring. Competence after chaos, as Suzanne Moore puts it in The Telegraph. So Marie, you can say Johnson and Brexit promised the moon and uh, Jeremy Corbyn in his, in his own way. What do you think of this theory? Has optimism been discredited in recent years? It's a, it's a really good question. I think I'll, um, I, I'm going to give a slight, like, actually quite a Boris-esque answer because I'm just going to say something slightly different. But no, so I think what we forget about Boris is that, you know, of course he was kind of exciting, uh, exciting and promised. Johnson, and on, on this podcast, um, we're not allowed to call him by his first name. We can't it's call a, him the buzzer. It's, it's a rule. No, it's Johnson. <laughs> oh, no, I... Uh, we could do an entire other podcast on that. I refuse because I think Johnson is a lot more common than Boris in the same way that Ken, we call him Ken, not Ken Livingston or Livingston. Um, anyway, the former prime minister. <laughs> um, I think so. Sorry, which one? <laughs> the last but one. Okay. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> um, but he, you know, what we forget is that obviously we can talk about him being exciting, promising the moon on a stake, etc. But really what he did was say, if you vote for us, we'll get Brexit done and you, you won't have to care about politics ever again. That, that was, I think we forget that he won the biggest majority in a generation by saying, we will shut up if you let us mm. win. Um, so, so actually, so, so in a weird way, I think that, again, the big promises did not matter as much. Like, I, I don't think people bought into them more than they thought, oh, God, yes, please go away. Hmm. The Corbyn thing is is an interesting one as well, I think, because people, because if you looked at the 2019 manifesto, actually, people really liked a lot of the policies separately, but they just did not trust Labour to actually deliver on them. So I wonder if actually that that's kind of what Starmer is doing, of saying, actually, fine, we will probably have like three promises and they will be quite small. <laughs> but, but you know, we will probably, you, you can trust us to actually well, deliver But this is them. what it seems to have gone from, which is, you said, far too many ideas, many of them great, but, you know, I didn't think that they would be, I just, I just didn't see any way that they could be delivered. And obviously people that, that didn't vote mm. Labour really didn't uh, think that. So some Marie's have learned the lesson, but they seem to have gone from like too many ideas to how about no ideas? So mm. is, that, is, is, is that, is it as simple as that, just this massive overcorrection? Mm. Oh, I think that's absolutely what happened. Yeah, they're just overcorrected. And I am happy to put on the record that I am finding the Labour Party incredibly boring at the mm. moment. And my worry as well is that actually, so you do... Like you want people to leave the house and vote for you. And I think, again, just relying on people hating the Tories worked under Liz Truss and whoever it was that came before her. <laughs> um, but I think Rishi Sunak is still just about palatable enough or bland enough for people that they may just go, actually, I don't really know what that Labour law stand for, so I'm not sure I can be bothered, you know, mm. going to vote. Yeah, I mean, but the problem is, you know, Keir Starmer himself like, is really quite dull and that's fine. And he, he never hid that. He never pretended to be exciting. And Rachel Reeves is, again, you know, not has never tried to sell herself as someone who's a kind of firecracker. So I do worry that they have overcorrected just too much. I, I'm very bored personally. I can't speak for everyone else, but yeah, I am quite bored. Matt, uh, there's a famous quote attributed to Mary of New York, Mario Cuomo, uh, campaign in poetry, govern in prose. Uh, Labour obviously campaigning in prose. <laughs> Can we expect them to... Governing poetry? Well, this is the problem, isn't it? I, I think it's very hard to do it that way around. And it feels like this. a lot of this is a reaction to populism, basically. That's what Boris Johnson and uh, Donald Trump and all those people represent. And if populism is like a big sugary cake that we all 
you know, like the look of them, then it tastes awful and it makes you feel bad. It feels like what the opposite to that is like fruit and vegetables, something good for you. Rather, um, and what they've decided it is is gruel. It's like no, it's no. We we want something you can get your teeth into, but is good rather than just sort of nothingy. And that does feel like yeah, where we are at the moment. Well, does I mean does that create a mandate problem? Because then you know. I suppose the hope is that they 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 are they have got these exciting ideas, but they just don't want to they're scared to tell us about them. But then, if you just assuming that optimistic scenario, and then they suddenly whip them out of the bag after the election, then people could legitimately go, "But we didn't vote for this." Yeah, I mean, I guess they're the, the optimistic view is that they're trying to be a bit like Biden, who ran in a fairly sort of centristy way, and then has done some fairly impressive things. Not really left-wing things, but he's done some pretty impressive things with the infrastructure bill and Build Back Better and the attempts at student debt relief and things like that. But I think Britain is quite different to the US in that way in that the the Republicans are so far right now that the Democrats, if they do anything even slightly centrist or even slightly left, it feels like a huge win. Whereas I don't think that's quite the case in this country. I think we have got space for Labour to do something, to say something a bit more radical and for people to, to, to accept it. Because the, the new Labour secret source was would be kind of that Blair sold the vision while Brown was a sensible bank manager, and and have we now just got two at least two Browns? <laughs> yeah, we've got Many, a lot of Browns, a multiverse of Browns. <laughs> you know the old saying: two Browns make a very brown thing. I think that's, <laughs> that's what we've got. We've just got so, yeah, and I think that is a problem. I think we've got Rachel Reeves, who is obviously playing that. I'm very sensible and I'm not exciting, but that's because I'm the guy, I'm the woman with the money and that's, you know, people need to trust me. But Keir Starmer's sort of also playing the same role. And that does feel to me, yeah, it does feel to me that we've got two people playing defence and we need at least somebody giving a bit of, yeah, show. a striker. Yeah. And it's quite striking as well that Angela Reno is clearly being uh, being kept on a very tight leash because mm. like, she could be, I mean, I, I don't know what people make of her, but... She could definitely be someone who is loud and is the kind of John Prescott of, of the 2023 Labour Party. But leader of the opposition's office clearly does not want her to do that. Yeah, yeah. And Lisa Nandy seems to be someone who's who, when she's given something interesting to talk about, she can be very interesting and can be quite passionate about okay. it. But she often seems to be talking about stuff that she's maybe not that. I think they have like a tripwire alarm. As soon as somebody starts saying something interesting, <laughs> then out, out come the senior Labour sources to brief against them. Miranda, what did you make of Simon Hanson's Guardian interview on Monday with uh, Rachel Reeves in which she was like uh, pretty much proudly boring? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, of course, as ever, I just had sympathy with Simon Hanson because I'm an interviewer and, you you know, I've interviewed politicians and it's really difficult. They are surrounded by people who are just legit, legitimately there to make them boring. That's what they do. I remember once interviewing Chukwu Muna and I literally asked him, do you prefer Liam or Noel? And he wouldn't even answer that. I mean, nothing. They will. They are there to just absolutely be as boring as they can and you know on one level I think okay great you know she's a shadow chancellor she literally said I'm not going to turn cartwheels I'm trying to be fiscally responsible and so and she also kind of made the point which I did think was true was that you know the world is changing really rapidly when it comes to money and things are very very bad so you know she can't kind of promise or perhaps things that they would have promised even six months ago she can't make those promises but I mean I think it's Interesting what you were talking what you were talking about with Biden because one of the reasons why I thought Biden succeeded in the first place was because he was associated with Obama, like he was associated with someone who was really inspiring, mm. and I and there is no one here, there is no one around that is inspiring. I mean, obviously Obama was an exception, but there's nobody as inspiring as that. And actually, it, you know, I also interviewed Gordon Brown, and when you heard him speak, 
he was great. Mm. He was actually really amazing, yeah. incredibly moving. And you felt inspired by him. And, and, and that, I find, is a, just a bit of a problem. Maybe PMQs isn't the right place for mm. this. But, you know, I just feel like it would be really nice to have somebody give a speech where I thought, yes, come on. There's a lovely moment in that interview where she says in her first year of university, her college friends bought her a framed picture of Gordon Brown and put it on her desk. Yeah. And I just thought, I don't think they were your friends. <laughs> <laughs> I think yeah, they were being, first year. Yeah, I think they might have been quite nasty. Yeah, they were taking the piss. Well, she, Reeve says sort of what Marie said. There are good Labour things that an incoming Labour government is not going to be able to do quickly or at all, and I don't feel good about that. Is it good enough to sort of blame the post-trust economic situation? Because they're dialing back every promise. Even the Green New Deal, when people would go, what are Labour promising? And I go, well, actually, I'm really impressed by this. And now they're like, not so fast. Can, can you run on... We'd love to do this, but we can't. But also, I mean, it's a bit like, you know, the reason why they're kind of welching on the Green New Deal is because they want to keep the papers on side, don't they? So they're kind of saying, OK, we're not get, we're really not as green as we, you, you thought we were because they feel like they can rely on the green vote, you know, because we're all going to vote for them because, you know, you know, that we know that underneath it all, they're going to be better on climate change than the Tories. But they don't want to alienate the Telegraph and they don't want to alienate the Times. So they kind of go, actually, it's, you know, we're, we're not really green. It's all right. You know, we, we understand that net zero is a bit of a problem. So they're just constantly trying to not scare the horses. And that's, you know, it's it's boring. Well, I wonder if this is a problem for Labour generally. Cause they talk to focus groups, you know, of switchers. And they and they if you ask what might stop you from voting Labour, it's can we trust you with the money? And it's my responsibility to make sure when people go to the ballot box next year, they think I can trust her with the money. Now, obviously, that's not wrong. But is the is fiscal responsibility essentially Labour's worst enemy that because this is a real thing that happens and any time you. You lose that, you know, like Corbyn and McDonald did. They did not convince people that they could be trusted with the money and it went very badly. But as a result, if all you've got is fiscal responsibility, this means that you don't want to, you can't promise anything else. I can't think of anything they're saying that is labor, that sounds like labor. So they say fiscal responsibility and, and economic growth. It's like, well, this could be anyone. This could mm. be like when they have a TV drama and they don't want to sh- give away which party <laughs> the generic politician <laughs> yeah, yeah. is from. And so they just list things like that. Yeah, that's. I mean, that that is incredibly true. They do occasionally bring out, you know, policy. I mean, the very weird policy last week about kind of, you know, we're going to teach school children to speak a lot, you know, better. Oracy, you know, a word I've whatever oracy is, you know. But they're going to be more confident, like private school pupils. I mean, mm. it's that that was the only thing. And I kind of thought, well, there's actually a lot that you can say about teaching. There's loads we could talk about with to do with education. And I I feel that that was not really grasping the nub of it. But, you know, that's as far as they've got. They just seem to be, I think, you know, I mean, I'm aware for, you know, for the podcast reasons, I'm reading the papers a lot. They just seem to be doing everything for the Times and the Telegraph at the moment. They're really, really worried about it and that they won't say anything. I think there's a really like wonky point as well, which uh, was first made, I think, by Chris Curtis, the pollster, which is that if you focus, and I think the press is guilty of that as well, if you always focus on yeah, either people who are kind of still hesitating between Labour and Tories are thinking of switching to Labour, etc., there are diminishing returns because if you, if you've got Labour polling now at what's you know forty five percent, if you're focusing on the people who are still that mm, maybe this maybe that still not sure, like that's a smaller and smaller and smaller mm. part of the population. And I think mm. it's easy to say, oh well, you know, people you know, floating voters are still not convinced. And it's like, yeah, that's because there are three people who are <laughs> left in Britain who are still floating voters. Well, because obviously you know they go, well, we're not complacent, but at a certain point, if you just if you treat 
regardless of what the polls are saying, every election as a super tight election, then you're never going to do anything. I don't know mm. what kind of poll lead would enable them to be braver. It feels like a moment we've got instead of yes, we can. We've got, I mean, we'd love to, but. And that, <laughs> that sort of sums up the kind of Labour attack at the moment. Of, yeah. Oh, we'd love to. But just a little. There should just be a section in the manifesto of policies that they would really love yeah. to do, but they can't. The kind of oh, section of the manifesto. <laughs> well, that would be great. Marie, Ed Miliband is one of the boldest thinkers on the front bench. Um, senior Labour sources were briefing against him and so-called tree huggers, which seems to be the, an absolutely balmy way to describe people concerned about mm. the climate. So what I worry about, I can understand they're just like, don't be interesting until the election. But people like him, Lisa Nandy, Bridget Phillipson, the, the people that seem to actually have ideas, are they actually going to have any money to execute these ideas? So that's my worry. I understand, like, careful, careful before the election. But afterwards, is Rachel Reeves just going to keep saying no to them? I think that is certainly the worry. And I think the other worry as well is that they're just also kept on a very, very tight leash policy-wise as well. You can t- and, you know, and to be fair, the Labour right have never hidden that. They hated Ed Miliband from the moment he got elected as leader of the Labour Party. They briefed against him relentlessly until the moment he stopped being leader of the Labour Party. Mm. Um, and then the second he got in the shadow cabinet again, guess what they started doing again? Um, so no, so I, I do worry that people who, and, and again, you know, even people like Ed and Lisa are not exactly Corbynites, but they are slightly to the left, I think, of the current leadership and the right of the party by definition. And, and yeah, and I think that there's still a lot of mistrust. And if you look, which is, again, not the sexiest point to make, but if you look at a lot of the staffing choices in the office of the leader of the opposition, a lot of them do come from that proper Blairite kind of tendency, all right of the party. And then they're kind of the ones pulling the strings. So I think that there will definitely be a problem of there will not be enough money for everything. But also, I think politically, I'm not sure these will be the people they want to shove into the limelight. I would feel differently maybe if the Labour right had ideas. Because you say, OK, maybe these people well, they are on Blair. the, on they the left. Tony Blair. And being on the left just seems to me, oh, right, you're on the left if you have any ideas at all. Like, I understand mm. the idea that, you know, sort of Corbynism, there were like too many ideas and they couldn't choose mm. and they couldn't prioritise and, and they couldn't convince people. But I don't really see that, this, this, that even if I disagreed with it, I go, oh, OK, these are strong policies. And I, the other worry I have is that they talk about growing the economy. Now, the right always have an answer for that. I mean, the, the right, right, the Tories, um, which is, you know, lower taxes, lower regulation or whatever. But mm. Labour traditionally has been investment. And so, you know, if you're not going to f- invest in public services, it's like that. You don't really have the, the soil from which you can have economic growth. So I don't even understand where the economic growth plan comes from if you're not going to spend any money on it. Does anyone, can anyone yeah, so explain? This is, this is a very tough one because I just, yeah, I'm just nodding for people who are listening yeah. to come see us. I'm kind of just nodding. I don't really have anything to add. This was a very good summary. <laughs> <laughs> you, yeah, that Thank was too you. good a I'll, question. I'll, 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 you can come again. <laughs> Miranda, do you worry then that the, the in office, considering the scale of the problems that we're facing, large, I mean, many of them caused by the Tories, but also, you know, this is a difficult time in the, in the history of the world. Um, Actually, if they just don't do anything, they come the next election, you can have a, the Tory party back or with a very strong chance and they will be almost inevitably, I think, more right wing. All these frustrations that led to Brexit will bubble up in a way that you could say in some way, at least Brexit channeled that into something. So the stake, they don't seem to, they don't convey a sense that the stakes are really high and that Britain desperately needs 
fixing and just going, well, we won't make it any worse. But I mean, that, I mean, okay, I'm going to be optimistic. Go Let on. me be Go optimistic. On. I'm possibly less, you know, kind of embedded within Labour policies than um, than other people here. Like I, I kind of think, okay, they're going to get in. Last time we had a Labour Labour government, they did Sure Start. They were better on education. Yep. They did lo- they did lots of stuff that really mattered. And I just think you just need three or four of those that that will really change it. You just need to build affordable housing. You know, do that. Why not? Why not do that? Why not build some social housing? That would be amazing. Why not pay teachers proper money? You know, and why not invest in nursery education and invest in childcare? If you did that, I would be so happy. And I just think that they probably will do that. They've already talked a little bit about what they're going to do with the railways, which obviously they need to do something. And I think, God, that's loads. It's absolutely loads. <laughs> nothing, nothing has happened. The Tories have done nothing other than mess the country up for years. I mean, Rishi Sunak doesn't seem to seem to operate within Parliament. They don't do anything. They just keep saying, oh, I'm really sorry, there's no money. That's it. <laughs> yeah. That's all they do. So I kind of think if you get Labour Party in, and, you know, I, I'm aware that they're kind of teetering on this tightrope. They have to be respectful all the time. But I genuinely think if they get in, they will do stuff around education and stuff around social housing that will make a difference. I believe. I believe. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose low expectations works then because I think obviously Corbynites um, are very angry. Uh, with Starmer. And I think there are many, many reasons for this. One of them might be just like, well, we've come from this big pile of ideas. You know, had they been deliverable, had they perhaps had a different leader to deliver them, so on and so forth, would have been super exciting. And so yeah. they talk, they look at all these abandoned pledges. Maybe the idea is that we get beaten down to the point where you expect <laughs> literally nothing. And then they just go, they can go, well, we're going to build houses and we're going to do this. and We're going to put some money into that. And it, it doesn't even have to be much. And because we're comparing it to the current state of like. It's awful. It's awful. And they've got no promises at all, as opposed to comparing it to the dizzy heights. I mean, they the are dizzy kind of saying of, things, aren't they? I mean, aren't they kind of saying they're going to take money off the private, school, private schools and put them into to state schools? I'm up no? for that. That yeah. is actually a Labour policy. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you for, know. For now. <laughs> that's the thing, yes, isn't it? Because I, I, I'm, I'm the same as you. I, there are several policies over the years that I've gone. Oh, that's a good one. I'm going to. I'm going to say to anyone who says, "Why do you? Yeah, you know, yeah. Are you mm. generally in favour of Labour?" I'll say this, and then quite often they then change that or reverse on it, and then you go, "Well, sort of." They, their heart's sort of in the right. It was in the right place. Their heart was in the right place for a bit. Yes, he goes. You've made me look a fool <laughs> in front of you know. At it was a scam on yeah, Twitter. Yeah, yeah. You know, there is a there is a thing. I just saw on Labour list today where they've come out with a whole load of recommended amendments to the draft policy platform. And it was quite interesting going through that and seeing the things that Labour are talking about. And there are lots of good policies there, um, that some of which will make it into the manifesto, hopefully. But the, the yeah, it, the question is sort of how big those policies are compared to the scale of the problem. And it feels like, yeah, there's lots of little interesting policies, but a pretty big problem to deal with. Well, maybe the slogan that they'll go with is "Where Streetings." The only thing worse than no hope is false hope. <laughs> that would be another one to take to the doorstep. I'm not sure Kennedy would have uh, been quite successful. <laughs> <laughs> Roosevelt in the middle of the yeah, New yeah. Deal, just going. We would absolutely love. We'd love to, to be create the jobs. We just love to be the Nazis. We just. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, Difficult at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> so expensive. Have you seen the economy? <laughs> Thank you. 
Next up is a question from one of our Patreon backers in But Your Emails. Keith K asks, Rishi Sunak keeps missing Prime Minister's question time and Nadine Norris hasn't been seen in Parliament for a year, despite drawing her handsome salary. Should MPs and ministers be compelled to turn up at the Commons or lose their positions and their money? Well, I mean, I think there are two answers. Yes, obviously, they should be compelled to be there at least some of the time. I'm not saying they should be there every single day, even if they've got a dentist appointment. But I reckon one solution to this might be if they are missing quite a lot of time, they should have to send a lookalike <laughs> or impressionist, someone who will do them as, you know, someone like Suze Kempner for Nadine Doris, who does a very good Nadine Doris online, uh, or just the team from Dead Ringers. And I feel like then they might turn up a bit more often <laughs> if every, every time they fail to turn up, someone stood up and did a sort of a parody of them. Oh, I quite like the idea of like, so maybe that's so if you miss like a couple of days, totally fine. You can get, you know, someone who really likes you, maybe like a spouse or someone, you know, someone you pick to yeah. replace you. If you're away for a really long time, it does end up just becoming that you will be replaced by someone who hates you. And yeah. like the longer you're away for, the more that person hates you. And they're allowed to speak in your name. <laughs> Maybe it's like a sports thing, yeah, where after a certain period of time, the other team gets to pick the substitute that they bring on. Yeah, so, yeah so. at first you get to pick, then the whips get to pick right. for yeah. you, then the opposite party gets to pick for you. Yeah, And then the public. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it feel, I feel quite sort of... I was naive about this, but I, you know, I generally think if you're doing a job, if you're being paid for a job, you should do the job. And Nadine Doris has just announced um, that she's got a book coming out in September. The plot. The plot. The assassination of Boris Johnson. <laughs> um, so it's obviously she has had time to write a book. I mean, it doesn't seem like perhaps it's one that she's... Well, she's know. not... Out, it's, oh, no, it's out in September, so it's already written. You're right. right. Oh, my yeah. goodness. Yeah. I mean, I don't know whether she's somebody that kind of labours through multiple drafts to polish the prose <laughs> just so, but yeah. still, she's had time to write a book. I don't know what she's like as a constituency MP, but it, it, does it not seem... You know, just it looking really at it weird. simply for as an outsider, <laughs> I know. they should turn it seems, up. It seems... I mean, do you remember all that fuss that Jacob Rees-Mogg was making about people not turning up to their... To their work. And mm. I think, well, I was thinking, yeah, but they are working, you know. I mean, they're literally kind of checking in. But with the MPs, are they? Mm. I mean, we don't know. I mean, maybe they're just spending all their time in the constituency being absolutely fantastic. But you kind of get the impression that they're not, that they're whatever. You know, they're doing a Boris, they're writing books, they're doing a Nadine, they're writing books. They're kind of swanning about being on various celebrity kind of, you know, big brother situations. I mean, if you're able to do that mm. and you're an MP, I think that is nuts. Or, or you know, or Liz Truss going to, where did she go? China, whatever, and, you know, two and like okay, an eighty thousand pounds yes. speech. She yeah. did, yeah, yeah. You know, so it's, all taken, it's fine. It's a little bit like when someone like phones in sick, and you know they're at Glastonbury. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's like, well, you're, you're clearly are somewhere else making money. But what? Marie, but if do, they were making, no, I mean, the thing gonna... is, I don't mind if they were hungover. I kind of think, okay, they went to Glastonbury. That's a bit of a laugh. Yeah. Mm. But I mean, if they're literally just doing another job, that's kind that I, that really annoys me. If they're on stage at Glastonbury, <laughs> like, oh, come on. <laughs> Um, I'm going to be devil's advocate. Are you going to defend these feckless layabouts? Well, so I think there are a few different things at play here. The first one is how expectations have evolved, um, especially now that, you know, and obviously that's not a very recent development, but um, what happens in the chamber is filmed and people kind of, you know, follow more closely what happens. But, you know, in the Commons in general, but more specifically in the chamber of the House of Commons, which is quite new. You know, I I didn't believe there ever was a time actually where all MPs always voted and always uh, participated in every debate. But also it's not, I'm not convinced we need it. So I know so one of the big things that came out actually of uh, the chamber being, chamber proceedings being filmed is that a lot of, you know, especially on big sort of emotional debates, every MP will want to do a three minute speech saying exactly the same thing that everyone else said so they can clip it for social media 
or put it on their Facebook page and say, listen, constituents, I, I spoke up, even though, again, and it eats up so much parliamentary time that every MP is that, well, I was mm. here and I did my three minutes saying the same thing as everyone else. So actually, I'm, I'm not convinced. You know, I, I don't think we have a parliamentary system, actually, that's built in for MPs to just always be at everything all the time. So, so I wonder if it's not the fact that we're now realising that's what they're doing as opposed to something that's changed. Um, is my very boring, yeah, de- devil's advocate case. One thing that does annoy me, though, a lot is that any time there's a question of, like, you know, how they're behaving, second jobs or whatever, the idea is like, well, uh, it's the job of the uh, voters at the next election to decide whether they approve them or not, which means that basically someone can... And, and particular, let's forget the fact that some places are just safe seats, although perhaps the Tories are fixing that problem. <laughs> um, but it means that you can basically ask about for five years and you don't nobody you can't be, you know, you're not you're not being sort of censured. There don't seem to be enough kind of rules because it's just like, oh, well, if you're really bad at this, then in five years time, you'll be fired. But yes and no, because I think if you do want to get, for example, a front bench job or do you like basically anything interesting, you do have to go via the whips and the whips will be paying attention to what you're doing. So I do think that and that's true. I think if you're literally someone who is just like, I don't care, you know, I've decided I don't care. I don't like being an MP, etc. I'm just going to stay and do nothing. Then that's fine. That and, and that you're right that no one can do anything. But I think if you've got mm. any kind of ambition to do anything interesting apart from just being a you know box standard backbencher, then the whips will have to be like, well, you should probably do a couple of things then. Um, so, so there's a, a, a bit more, I think, right. um, to it. But but Nadine Darris is just like, she's quiet quit, isn't she? Next up, ex-Chancellor and future podcaster George Osborne's wedding was briefly interrupted by a protester throwing orange confetti last weekend. Uh, despite the fact the first week of July was the hottest ever uh, in the history of the world, uh, rain of orange paper took over Twitter. Just Top Oil initially shared the video on Twitter uh, and said, you look good in orange, but later said they weren't responsible for the stunt. It was some random freelance activist. Um, Matt, Osborne's podcast co-host Ed Balls, and that's a whole other thing that I don't want to get into right now. <laughs> um, it, on Good Morning Britain, invoked the murder of Joe Cox... Uh, as where this can lead and Tory journalist Andrew Pierce said what if it had been something other than confetti like TNT or a hive of wasps <laughs> what did you make of the outrage I mean it's so rare and exciting to see pure whataboutery in action isn't it because mm-hmm. it's so rare you see it's so absolutely distilled to its essence of utter stupidity you know what if it had been anthrax what if they'd done it at a funeral what if they'd done it during an operation what if they'd done it underground what if they'd done it in a submarine what if the submarine was allergic to, to confetti yeah. yeah what if, what if there was only one person left in the world and they <laughs> threw confetti and that they turned to have an allergy to orange ink what about that it's just sort of like yes there yes that that would be bad but there is a difference between those things two things are not always the same thing and th- th- this idea that there's no difference between non-violent protest and an assassination attempt that there's nothing in between those two things it's just deliberately disingenuous and and that's that's that is very much the the playbook well it seems quite calculated i mean i thought ed balls was an absolute disgrace to be honest on that because the the iron law of just stop oil is non-violence that is what they are taught all the yeah, been to one of their training sessions is like that is what they teach and if the, and they literally literally there was a guy that left because he goes i'm not sure if i can do the non-violence and so what you're seeing there is this deliberate implication that protest is just a step towards mm. violence. And it's just like, you know, 
Who knows where this confetti will lead? And that that destroys the whole premise <laughs> yeah. of nonviolent protest in, in what seems to me a very deliberate way. Yeah, and, and I think Owen Jones made a good point in that interview when he was allowed to speak because Ed Balls kept talking over him. Um, it, there is a threat of violence in this country and a lot of that comes from the far right. Mm. And also Islamic terrorism is, is still not gone away, but left-wing violence isn't so much of a thing. And it does feel to me that essentially what we've got is a situation where, yes, the far left can be quite annoying, but the far right can be quite murdery. And it's like they're <laughs> not like that is not the same thing. You are allowed to find people annoying, but not want them to not want them to be banned from being annoying. So, Maria, do you think it's something about weddings that makes even tiny bits of paper which are traditionally thrown at weddings <laughs> um, such an outrageous intrusion? I, I mean, there are weddings and weddings, though, right? Like, I, I do think it's probably a case-by-case case basis. And I, I get that, you know, you can't help who you fall in love with and stuff. But the fact is, it was a former chancellor marrying his former chief of staff. And it was a wedding attended by half the establishment. So I'm a bit like, of course, it was a political event in lots of ways. That It's not. No, but, but in which I know is probably going to sound weird. But but, and it, but I think it's, it's, it's a vibes-based thing, isn't it? Well, like, let's say George Osborne had actually met, I don't know, a seamstress. Um, and then actually the wedding was somehow just the seamstress family. And that was that. And George was the only one on his side, right? I would have found confetti weird there. <laughs> then it was, so you know what I mean, right? Yeah, like, yeah, and yeah. I think that if you look at the people who attended the wedding and the two people getting married, I'm a bit like, well, of course it was quite political. Like, that's not, you, can, you can't deny that. Like, that's the life you've chosen for yourselves. And if the fact that there is, the reason that it was captured, the protest, was because there was a cameraman from... Uh, mm. a press agency filming it yes that's what like i think that doesn't count as a private event if you've got literally mm. f- film cameras there and it's like the, the number of journalists there yeah. i thought that was very weird oh a friend yeah. was sent and to pick it they're going oh i know oh, but they were friends with thea back which is a journalist and they went were they that close were they so super close yeah. that emily maitlis and john sober and everybody else like had to be there could they not have just pretended that they were seeing blur yeah or something. It just it just it does reveal this idea that or this fact that there are lots of people within the media who see politics essentially as a game and it's a game it's a high stakes game but they are they're all friends really and and this this idea this sort of conspiracy theory-esque idea that you know they're all in it together isn't helped. <laughs> you, you, you don't help that by that you know that situation. Miranda, does the fact that we now associate the colour orange with just a boil prove that they're getting somewhere? Yeah, I mean, certain people don't associate the colour orange with just stop oil, I would say. But, um, well, yeah. not in every context. Not in every context, but perhaps in but in a protesty England, fashion. In a protesty fashion, yes. I mean, yeah, I think they've done quite well. Northern, are you making Northern Ireland <laughs> yeah. points? Yeah. yeah. Um, like, uh, you know, but, uh, you, know, within, you know, within the protesty thing, I think, yeah, they've done quite well. <coughs> meaning that, this is going to sound a bit weird. But um, Extension Rebellion had that kind of weird logo, mm. which we would we would recognise. But that was kind of it. Whereas the idea that you you know any kind of uh, public event might be disrupted by somebody in a bit of orange, it's quite jolly. My favourite <laughs> story about this um, was a stag do who went to the British Grand Prix and they made the stag dress up in a orange t shirt with just stop oil on it. So he spent all day being questioned by police. <laughs> Which is just, it's just, I mean, I think when when a stag do is using you as a costume, you know you've made an impact. But does it show perhaps also the problem with this this sort of horizontal kind of leaderless organisation? If a freelancer can can basically be seen to represent you, for example, you know, I went to Blur at the weekend. If I'd thrown orange paint at Damon Elton, which I wouldn't do because I love him and Mm. his band, um, just a boy would have been blamed. 
instantly. And it does seem like they go, well, it wasn't us, but the whole organisation... Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because if you, were, if you were kind of very anti just stop oil, you could start doing it in very dodgy situations. You could do all kinds of false flags. You know, you, you kind of definitely could. I mean, I'm quite interested in that woman who did throw the orange confetti. Yeah, we and still wasn't. don't know. We, so she just looked like a perfectly respectable church-going middle-aged lady is what she looked like. And I think, you know, like we were talking about the Surrey Swingers or whatever, you know, she was kind of one of them. And they've got... They've, <laughs> Like, do you know what I mean? They kind of won. Yeah, she fucked. She, she, <laughs> she, she's been won over to the radicals, mm. you know, from before she was like maybe going to vote Tory. Or was so it I all go, a, yes. Or was it all a sort of funny, a, a sort of stunt? Or was it all trying to draw attention away from the, you know, the but I did, I did hear that I as, know, as a conspiracy you know. theory. I, I do not believe it to be true. I don't, but I'm I, not I saying I believe that, it, but, but, I did, but because yeah. we don't, I, I do find it extraordinary for a situation, for an event that has so many uh, uh, politicians, journalists, security that we haven't found out who that woman is, that that hasn't come out. I, I know that, that she was just a shit stirrer. <laughs> she yeah. Just, just wanted, yeah, loved attention. Marie, a common critique is that just a boil um, strategies like insulate Britain before them, alienate ordinary people who are really concerned about the environment. Um, but then I do wonder what they were doing before Extinction Rebellion started five years ago and whether one can really argue that these movements have made the climate crisis like less prominent. This sort of... You know, the sort of tone policing of protest and goes, if only you were just nicer and didn't make a fuss, then the quiet masses of the British people would be behind you. Oh, no, I, I find it incredibly annoying. It's the same as strikes, right? People are like, oh, strikes are very disruptive. It's like, oh, are they? <laughs> um, just, oh. Um, but no, no, I don't. Yeah, like, I, it's one of those weird ones where I don't even really know what to say because the point seems so obvious to me. Where I'm a bit like, OK, well, people did not really care. And if you track as well, so I wrote about this before, that was more... Extinction Rebellion than uh, Just Up Oil. But people cared. So just before the pandemic, I think it was the highest point for like people kind of caring about the environment, mm. the environment mattering. So it works. Like, it, it actually does work. And people, you know, I, I remember from my own days um, in the student protests of 2010, people did not care at all when we went marching again and again and again. And then whenever we did a silly stunt, then suddenly people cared a lot. So it's a bit, yeah, again, I, I even struggled to talk about it because the point to me seems so obvious and, of uh, yeah. small stuff that does not disrupt anyone will not change anyone's mind. And home insulation is more of an issue now than it was before Insulate Britain. It, what it seems to me is that every form of protest is considered unacceptable so just to boil uh they the confetti you know that's bad um the, what about streaking that's mm-hmm. allowed that's is it streak, not? no streaking is well I, it's been a fun um i've never done it myself but you know disrupting uh sporting events and so on that's bad when i kind of went along on a just a boil action it was blockading a um oil terminal which of course meant that petrol couldn't get to the stations and motorists were angry so that was unacceptable even though you're literally targeting the oil industry so is the game here in terms of the you know the the critics is that whatever you're doing is unacceptable absolutely well, yeah completely i mean because who is criticizing because if you if you saw like say for instance you saw people with placards outside um a public institution, and you read those placards and you thought, yeah, I completely agree. You would toot your horn, you would go, yes, go for it. Of course you would, because, you know, you're an empathetic person who thinks about other people. The people who are attacking Just Stop Oil or whoever is protesting the strikers or whatever are essentially, you know, the Daily Mail, you know, and people who agree with them. That's that's just it. They just essentially want a nice, quiet life um, and where, you know, the Tories stay in and everything is great and we don't have to think about these awful, difficult 
uh, situations that we find ourselves like climate change or war or anything like that. We just want everything to just be locked down and be normal. And the fact is that is not the situation. Matt, Matt Dancona, I thought, had a good phrase where he wrote, this isn't virtue signaling, it's desperation signaling. Yeah. From my experience, the, the activists, they are incredibly emotionally fraught. This idea that because, you know, many of them are you know, middle class is that they're just sort of, this is just a bit of a lark. It, it, it's not that at all, particularly since they are the whole point of these protests is that you have to be willing to go to jail yeah, yeah. so that that seems to know that people just, oh well you know whatever it's you know, tree huggers or whatever and it's like these are people that feel like they have no other choice if they want to move the needle on this but to risk going to jail yeah i thought um hugo rifkind had a good piece about this in the times this week about how the anger directed at just a is really covering up guilt and I think there's a lot of truth to that. And he was abs- and he said, and I'm sure you'll I'll have loads of comments under this article which call me an idiot. And he absolutely did. Had hundreds of comments saying, it's all rubbish. And it was, I think it was sort of proving his point that that he's right, that you, I know from personal experience, you never get as angry as when you sort of know you're in the wrong, where you're doing something you think, oh, I shouldn't really be doing this. And then you sort of lash out because you know it's your problem. And I think that's certainly how I feel a lot of the time about the climate is, it's obviously a massive problem, but I also like doing stuff which is bad for the environment sometimes, and that's that's a difficult sort of problem. I think to problem, deal I think with, so much know. of the language actually around, I mean, around the left in a broader sense is is a real anger at people's having strong principles. You know that that's where it's all you know finger wagging and do gooding mm. and virtue signaling and of course some people with strong principles can be sanctimonious and annoying yeah. and so on but there seems to be a real anger that these people are willing to to sort of put their bodies on the line for something they believe in and that that in itself almost separate from the cause just is incre- just makes you feel bad because you know yeah, because that because you're not someone who would do that i think that's what it is it's i that, get that from vegans and i think people on both sides sort of desperately want not to think about it like yeah. in a way and so in a sense on the on the, the just up oil people they're d- trying to do a thing to try and stop something but also people who are against them also doing the same thing but they're sort of doing the la 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 i don't want to think about this but look at what you know the government rowing back on pledges you know labor kind of this is literally briefing against ed Miliband for caring about mm. you know boring old environment there's that line in in one of the pieces about the oil worker comments who say you know the, the idea that if one Oil worker in Aberdeen says that our plans are going to cost his job. That's it. We're done. That was it. Was it was not even that would be a bit annoying. But like we're done. We're, we're over. I think if you Labor's say done. if you say something that stupid, you should just have to have your name. <laughs> yeah, it should there be, should be a yeah. limit. Yeah. Yeah. Or you can be anonymous up to a certain point. And if you just say something that's wild bullshit, it's like sorry, mate. You put yeah. your name on that. Yeah, because it just made me think of. It's like you've got to have a bit of confidence. Surely it felt a bit like to use my own analogy, like. Like a stand-up walking on stage, thinking if one person heckles, I'm going to give up. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like you can't go yeah. on stage with that feeling. I guess I'm not. Thank you for pointing out that I'm not funny. Yeah, yeah. that's I'm it. Not going to do this anymore. You're you, walking you, off. And you make that a good point. That. You make an excellent point. I don't know what I was doing. <laughs> it was really very poor material. And it feels like, like if you're Labour, they've just got to make the argument. <laughs> like, mm. That feels like the big problem. Generally, it's just like make the argument that this is an important thing. It's a very popular issue. Yeah. that's the other thing. Lots mm, of people yeah. do care about. The climate, Miranda. Finally, we venerate protest movements in the past. The, the civil suffragettes, the civil rights movement, even when they involve violence. Suffragettes, famously, quite a lot of violence there because they achieved uh, noble goals. So, is the problem is that 
they're always outrageous in the present and admirable in the past. And actually, if you look at opinion polls, what people thought of Martin Luther King in his lifetime, really not very popular, you know, seen as a real as a real troublemaker. But once he's dead, the most right wing Republican will go, as the great Martin Luther King said. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's like anything, isn't it? It's like George Floyd protests or the protests in France or it's anything in a situation because actually sometimes they're really scary. So if you've if you've been at a protest that turns into a riot, it can, it's scary. You know, those situations can be, they're volatile and, you know, wild and they're kind of simultaneously thrilling and, and scary. And I think that that's part of what it is. So if you th- see a protest, then there's always something slightly in the back of your mind that it might go a bit further, I think. And that's what, like people are worried about because just stop oil have kind of said they won't do that i feel like you know like really there's nothing to worry about they're not that bad they're just literally sitting on the floor they're you know like swampy used to do you know they're just like you can just pull them aside so you know and they're and they're in the right Does what's going on in the American election scare and bemuse you in equal measure? Want to know what Biden and Trump are up to without tearing your hair out? Then you need to listen to American Friction, the brand new podcast about the countdown to the big vote in November from the makers of Oh God, What Now?, The Bunker and Paper Cuts. Every Friday, we'll speak to leading experts and blockbuster commentators from the United States to explain the latest news and the big issues behind the vote. That's American Friction with me, Jacob Jarvis. Me, Chris Jones. And me, Nikki McCann Ramirez. Out every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. We've reached the end of the show, so it's time to talk about stories that have gone under the radar this week. Uh, Marie? Yes, yeah, so actually, like, I'm really happy about this because it... it, it fits in really well with the rest of the podcast. The nature restoration law is currently going through the European Parliament. There's a proposal that aims to rehabilitate at least 20% of Europe's degraded ecosystems by 2013. Um, and it is this kind of yeah massive thing that's been happening and kind of captivating everyone in Brussels, but sadly not, not people really mm. outside of Brussels. Um, but no, so the Conservative European People's Party tried to um, put an amendment that would kind of like throw the entire thing in the bin a few days ago. It nearly passed, but did not. Um, so yeah, so it keeps going. So we'll find out in a few days if that's going to pass or not. But yeah, a really big piece of green green legislation going on in the EU. Mm-hmm. Matt? Well, I thought this was quite a, quite a heavy show in some ways. So I thought I'd lighten it up with my um, Under the Radar, which is a lovely story I saw, which is that apparently um, Charles and Camilla... Um, don't share a bedroom. They have two separate bedrooms, which is fairly standard. Mm. But the detail in the piece, which I thought was fun, was the fact they also have a third bedroom, which they can use whenever either one of them is in the mood. And that really, I thought oh. that's a lovely image. Like a fuck room. Yeah, it's a fuck room. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> a boudoir, please, it's, gentlemen. It's, it's a sex chamber or something, you know. It's a, it's a, a lo- sex dungeon. Well, who knows which floor it's on? We don't know. We that's, don't know. Um, uh, that's certainly lightened the mood. Uh, Miranda. Okay, so mine is, I mean, also slightly, you know, relevant to what we thought. We were talking about orange, weren't we? We were talking about orange. And today, you know, well, you know, we're recording on a particular day. And I just wanted to mention that in the Craigie Hill estate in um, Northern Ireland, they've won a Guinness Book of Records. Um, they've got, they, they've won a record at the Guinness Book of Records. Um, it, they've built a bonfire that's 210 
uh, foot high uh, in order to, you know, kind of uh, dance around um, with their orange uh, slogans. And yes, they're, they're, you know, it's supported by the local council. There are 573 loyalist parades today. So, you know, orange, go for orange. So because it's my favourite day of the Google calendar. Oh, yeah, the Battle, of the, Battle of the Boyne brackets, Northern Ireland. Yeah. I mean, and, it's I, just, and I keep it every time of year. I'm just like, I must learn a little bit about the. But Battle it's just of amazing because it's never covered in the British press. Yeah. It's absolutely mm. all over the Northern Irish press. It's all over the um, new the news in Northern Ireland. Of course, it is because it's a very important part of the year, and of course, it's completely under the radar here. Mine is just that uh, Milan Kundra died at the age of 94, and um, he is one of those uh, one of the novelists I read as a teenager where I was like, yowza. Um, because basically it was like dissident politics, literature and sex all at once. A suggestion that perhaps the dissident politics and the literature would lead to sex, <laughs> which was very enticing to me. Um, and uh, it makes me want to reread um, The Book of Laughter and Forgetting, which is my favorite, and The Unbearable Lightness of Being, which is the famous one um, with the definitely sex bits and it was just I just thought what a wonderful it was one of those things where someone dies and you just go well you're 94 and you did great work and uh, that's nothing to to mourn really oh and Hmm. it changed your life that's amazing yeah you did some work and it changed your life how brilliant so hat tip to Milan Kundra I'm team immortality (laughs) (laughs) and I did like his book that's a good no, um, that's a good hipster choice and that's the show thank you so much to marie thank you matt thank you and miranda and yo. if you're listening on friday there's a new episode of paper cuts coming soon to your feed we can't tease the headlines because they haven't been written yet so you'll have to subscribe to find out stay tuned for the extra bit after demon is a monster by corner shop and the traditional thank you to our generous supporters you too could join them and get the podcast early and without ads plus lots more search oh god what now patreon to find out how we'll see you next time hello and thanks for your support to sarah stevens Andy Hardy and Svendu Mukherjee. Massive thanks from me and hello to Gabriel Poynton, Nick Cheney and Lindsay Wade. And thanks from me to Kenneth Gordon, Stephanie Murray and Paul Rags-Sykes. See you next time. Oh God, What Now was presented by Dorian Linsky with Matt Green and Marie Leconte. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, the managing editor was Jacob Jarvis and the producers were Chris Jones and me, Alex Reese. Socials by Jess Harpin, art direction by James Parrott and Mark Taylor, Our assistant producer was Adam Wright. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Extra Bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. What did you want to do when you grew up? For Generation Z, apparently it's as little as possible, it says here. A Guardian piece on so-called lazy girl jobs reports that young trendsetters on TikTok want easier work and they're willing to walk away if they don't get it. They're rejecting the hustle and grind ideology and choosing to prioritise their life outside of work. How dare they? Amanda, uh, we are both familiar with the trend piece genre. <laughs> yes. <laughs> How much do you, do you read into this? Is this a, a profound generational response to uh, you know, stalled economy and impossible house prices and, and so on? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I do actually think it is partly because it's a bit like, you know, 
it's all very well having <laughs> your job kind of creating your identity or it all being wrapped together. If you don't earn enough money, that doesn't work. So I kind of thought, look at the that generation, particularly in lazy girl jobs. You could you could kind of say something like OnlyFans is a lazy girl job. Do you know what I mean? It's like a way of earning money quite quickly and building it up so that you can actually do something with your life. I think that a lot of what, what, what reading the um, articles around it, it just seems that they're kind of wising up and saying, actually, you know, identity, being identified with a cool job is absolutely fantastic, but I need money. I cannot survive without money. So I've got to do something that's a quick hustle. Well, weren't, weren't slackers the product of a, the sort of late 80s, early 90s recession? They so were, but they also, yeah, but they were, they, they kind of did muck jobs, didn't they? And everything was a little bit cheaper. That that was kind of part yeah. of it, wasn't it? So you did a, you did an easy job that didn't bring much money in because you didn't want to kind of, you know, be a, like a, a kind of 80s corporate type. That was it. That was the idea because you knew it didn't work. So that that was still a slight identity thing, really, because mm. you're saying, hey, I reject the, 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 the hustle culture. I'm not like that. I just, you know, I listen to cool music and I, and I work a kind of, doozy job and that is actually an, an identity i don't think it feels like this it feels like something else it feels like how can i get money quick like what way can i yeah. do this because this is the only way i will be able to do anything uh marie i've noticed that on twitter um because all the good advertisers have left that um a lot of the ads are full of this real sort of macho hustler rhetoric about how to succeed um all of which is quite obvious and obnoxious do you think that the language of aspiration is is pretty off-putting these days it is, but it's also, I think, um, to be yeah, I agree with Miranda, but I think it's also like it, it doesn't match up at all with, I think, uh, people's experiences. Obviously, I'm a millennial, so like one generation up from Gen Z. And I was very much, you know, when I was in my 20s, like everything was about girl bosses and was it like multi-hyphen careers. So That was I a teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more, oh God, what now every week without ads and a day early, then do yourself a favour and sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £3 a month. You'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast, Oh God, What Else, every Monday morning and some fabulous merchandise. Thanks for listening and see you next week. <laughs>